0: Good morning, church. Good time in worship this morning. Amen. Wonderful to have this time with you and to see your faces. And I just want to let you know, if you've been tracking along in this Revelation series, of course, we're in uh, letter six of the seven uh, letters. And um, some of them have been pretty heavy. It's been pretty hard hitting for the last uh, several weeks. And um, I'm, I'm pleased to tell you that we're at uh, the sixth letter, which is the letter to the church in uh, Philadelphia, which is a, a no. Uh, no condemnation, no critique of this church. It's all commendation. This is a message that I think comes at a good time for us to be encouraged and built up. And, and hopefully, you are, um, are going to experience just that some encouragement uh, here today as we look at God's word. And so, let's, talk, let's start talking um, uh, uh, with this. Let's talk about doors. We have a nice little collage up there of various really cool looking doors. And while many doors can simply be opened by grabbing the handle and turning it, um, uh, many, many other doors are locked. And if we want in, we need someone to let us in, or we need a key, or we need a fob, or we need a code, or we need a thumbprint, or we need a a retinal scan, or something that's going to let us in through uh, this locked door. And uh, the kingdom of God has a door. Uh, The kingdom of God has a door, and the door is locked. Locked. And um, it isn't accessible to just anyone. You can't just walk into the kingdom of God and claim it for yourself. Uh, You have to have a key. You have to have a key to the door of the kingdom of God. And in today's passage, Jesus is said, in this letter that's written to Philadelphia, Jesus is said to have the key of David. And that any door that Jesus opens stays open, and no one can close it. And any door that Jesus closes, stays closed, and no one can open it. Jesus has the key of David. And that particular point, that Jesus has the keys, that he opens and closes the doors, that no one else can do that, was of particular importance and of particular encouragement to the church in Philadelphia, in Asia Minor, in Turkey, not in Pennsylvania. Just to clear that up. It's not talking about a church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, although there may be churches in Philadelphia that need to be encouraged, and they could be encouraged in the same way we can, but that's not the church we're talking about. This was of of great importance to them because they were in a terrible situation. They needed the encouragement. They were facing difficulties, and, and they were facing people in that city who were saying things about them that were just weren't true, and it was crushing them. And so they needed to be encouraged. And Jesus encourages them with this letter. And it may be that some who are here today in the room or are watching on the live stream uh, right now, maybe some right now need that same word of encouragement. Maybe it's been a difficult week or a difficult month or difficult years. Maybe something's pressing in on you right now. You've carried that burden into this room. And the timing couldn't be more perfect for you to be encouraged today in your walk with Christ. And so let's read the letter and then we'll uh, get into the outline. This is Revelation 3, uh, verses 7 through 13. These letters, of course, are written from Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. They come through um, uh, the Apostle John, who receives them, and to the angel of the church. And so this is what we read in Revelation 3 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, this is what we're going after. Jesus opens and closes all doors, and so we should be encouraged. Hopefully, this is encouraging to you today. Now, before we get to the first point, work through the outline here, let's set up the basis for this encouragement, this encouragement that we're receiving from Christ. We want to establish its legitimacy, and we want to answer the question, can we count on him? Can we really count on Jesus to come through for us and to be this encouragement that we need in the midst of challenges and difficulty? Will this really encourage me to live for him no matter what? And the encouragement, not surprisingly, is found in who he is. Jesus starts this letter, as he started all of the letters, with a description of himself that relates back to this grand vision that John had in chapter 1 of Jesus. What he says in the letters relates to who he is. It's grounded in who he is. And he does that again in this letter. He starts with this threefold description of himself in verse 7. He says, first of all, that he's the holy one. To be holy is to be set apart. It's to be completely other. And it is to be without sin. And that's really, that last one is really what completely sets him apart for us. What makes God so distinct from us is that he is without sin. It's the the one thing that makes us most unlike him. Because if the sin were not there, our sin were not there, we're created in the image of God. But sin is marred that, and so he is other, he is holy, he is set apart, especially in the sense that he is pure and holy and without sin, and we are sinners. Secondly, he's not only the holy one, he's also the true one. Um, God's legit. Jesus is legit. He's genuine. He's the real deal, unlike The posers, we're going to talk about them in a moment, unlike the posers that we're going to see in the church in Philadelphia or in the city of Philadelphia that are giving the church such grief. So he's the holy one. He's the true one. And then thirdly, see this in verse seven. He has, we've talked about this already, the key of David. He's the promised Messiah. He fulfills the prophecies. He's the heir of the throne, the eternal throne of Israel. And what's interesting about this phrasing that we have in verse 7 is that this is a lift right out of Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two. If you're taking notes, jot down that reference. Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two, where we have God promoting this man named Eliakim, promoting him to the role of chief steward in the palace of King Hezekiah of Israel. He's the chief steward of Hezekiah's household. He's given full and unrestricted access to the king, full and unrestricted access to his family, full and unrestricted access to all that he has. He's given the keys. He's able to open and close all the doors on his own authority and responsibility. And evidently in this way, when you read about Eliakim and you see that it's referred to right here in Revelation 3 from this Old Testament passage, you realize that Eliakim is actually what theologians call a type of Christ. He's a symbol of the Christ in the sense that he has these keys. That he has this authority over the king of Israel's household. He's a type, an Old Testament symbol of Christ. Both had the key. Both were the one who opened and closed doors. Both had access to it all. Eliakim in the household of Hezekiah and Jesus in the kingdom of God. He's a type. Anytime you're reading in the Old Testament and you see something, you go, that that kind of, in that way, that kind of sounds like Jesus. Like that kind of sounds like that could be him, this thing that's being done or this person. That's a type of Jesus that's pointing forward to him. And the principle is clear here that the one who has the master key is in charge. He has authority. He's sovereign. But then consider what Jesus did with this key. Because he didn't just keep it for himself. And this is critical to our understanding of everything else we're going to look at here. Jesus, in fact, told Peter and the disciples in that incredible passage in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 16, 19, he said this I will give you, he's talking to the apostles, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever doors you open, whatever doors you close, I'm sharing my authority first with the apostles and then to the church in the generations that follow. And that's the reassurance that we have that in the midst of whatever difficulties we're facing, whatever opposition is coming against us, we have divine authority. We have the power to overcome. As every letter says at the end, we can conquer. We can conquer in Jesus' name. And so all of this is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. All the encouragement is going to flow through him. And so in light of this, Ready to get into the message now? That was, all just, that was all just set up. Okay. In light of all this, we should be encouraged, see this first of all, to persevere in his work. Persevere in his work. Jesus is opening and closing doors. The church was given the keys of the kingdom. We saw all of that. And along with the keys of the kingdom, Jesus gave to the church a mission to represent Christ in the world. Here are the keys... Here's all this this privilege, this authority that I'm giving to you, but here also is a mission. And when I hear that, I realize Uncle Ben was right. With great power comes great responsibility. Uncle Ben was right. How many people have no idea who Uncle Ben is right now? How many people have no idea? Just admit, you need to spend more time in the Marvel Universe You'll know who Uncle Ben is. But he was right. With great power, with the keys to the kingdom comes the responsibility for the mission. If you want the keys, you have to represent the king. And so Jesus says to them, He wants them to persevere in their work. And in fact, that's what they're doing. And He says to them in verse 8, I know your works. But I'm, I'm fully aware, I'm, I'm intimately acquainted, Jesus says with what you're trying to do missionally in the church, in your city. And I know that as you're seeking to do that, I know what you're going through as believers. I know. I know everything going on in your life. Sometimes when we we hear that God knows what's going on in our lives, that, that God knows intimately everything that's going on in our lives, we automatically snap to the negative of that. He knows all the bad things I'm doing. He knows all the sin that I've committed. And we, and we kind of want to play the Adam and Eve thing and hide ourselves. But listen, when God says to the church in Philadelphia, I know that I'm intimately acquainted, what he's saying to them is I know how hard it is for you. I know how much you're trying to work out the mission here, even in the midst of how hard it is. And that should be so comforting to us that God knows these things so we don't have to hide from Him and we don't have to put on any kind of a front because God knows all the hard things that we're going through in life. When I was, as soon as I saw this, I was thinking about, um, and we don't have time to look into it, but Psalm 139 and how comforting that psalm is. And if you're just in a place right now where you're going like, life is hard and I could just be refreshed in my memory about how awesome it is that God knows all these things about me, read Psalm 139 this afternoon and then read it again tomorrow and read it every day this week and be reminded about how awesome it is that God knows. He knows about the loved one who's hurting and you're carrying that burden for them. He knows the financial pressures you're under. He knows the diagnosis that you're waiting for. He knows the strain between you and your wife. He knows all about the challenges you're having with your kids or grandkids. He knows the fight you're having with your neighbor. He knows how hard it is at work right now. He knows all of it, and he cares. He wants you to be encouraged. In fact, in light of what he knows of the believers in Philadelphia, he assures them, and he says, behold, I've set before you an open door, and no one's able to shut that. You have access to to the kingdom of God, and no one can shut that. I want to leave and let you know you can't shut it. You can come to me. You have access, unrestricted access to the king. No one can shut the door on your relationship with the Savior. No one can say you don't belong to him or you're not a good enough Christian or you're not living the Christian life in a way that you ought to. And in fact, that point right there was critical for the believers in Philadelphia. Just as it was critical for the believers in Smyrna in the second letter that we looked at because it's the same issue. The believers in the first century had actually been accustomed to continuing to continue to go in certain places, to continue to go to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogues, because the Jewish synagogues were teaching the Holy Scriptures. They were teaching what we know as the Old Testament. The Christians knew that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of those promises that were being taught in the synagogues. so they would continue to go to the synagogues, continue to go to listen to the rabbis as they taught about the Messiah, as they taught about Israel. To them, they saw that it was not incompatible at all. This was a perfect fit for them to hear the Holy Scriptures talk about the Messiah that they knew as Jesus. But this became a problem for the Jews. The Jews in the synagogues in various cities, including Smyrna and Philadelphia, kicked them out, claiming that they alone, as Jews, were the true people of God and that these Christians were not. And Jesus is saying to them, They can't close that door on you. I opened it. No one can close it. If I open a door, it stays open. Then he goes on to say to them, because he knows how they're feeling about this, and he says in the latter part of verse 8, I know that you have but little power. Yes, I know you're just a little church. I know that from your perspective, you have no influence in this city, that no one cares about you. You're insignificant in the eyes of the people of Philadelphia. But, Jesus says, two descriptors. One, you have kept my word, my word about patient endurance, this this message that I've given to you that flows out from the gospel that you can continue to live for me no matter what. You're keeping the word of God. You're obeying and living out the gospel. That's the positive description. And then from a negative perspective, he says, you've not denied my name. You're still calling yourself a Christian. You're still proclaiming the message of Christ. You're still identifying with Jesus and lifting high his name in worship. And both of those, keeping the word and not denying his name, speak to their faithfulness. They are faithful. And that was what God was measuring. Now, we have a big problem in this area because we measure everything with numbers. And one of the things that the pandemic has done for us the last two years, I'm not supposed to say the P word, the last two years, the last two and a half years, one of the awesome things that has done for us, yes, awesome things happened during the last two and a half years. Do you believe that? awesome things happened during the last two and a half years. And one of, the, one of the things that happened was that God, if I could say it this way, God crucified the attachment that pastors have to numbers. Pastors are attached to numbers. Talk about it all the time. How many people came to your church? How many people come to your church? How big is your budget? How many people got baptized? How many people in small groups? It's all metrics. It's all spreadsheets and reports. But that gets crucified when God says in the midst of P word, you're going to come to church and you're going to preach. There's not going to be a single soul in the room, not even a camera person. You're going to preach to a camera and you're going to wonder if anybody's on the other side of it. But I'm going to ask you to keep doing it. Just preach every week. Just keep preaching. You think about it, churches now, and, and you may not know these numbers, but churches now, there's not a single church I know, not one, and I do a lot of reading and read a lot of surveys, and all. not one church is back to its pre-pandemic, I said the word again, <laughs> not one church is back to its attendance before this all started, not one. The best, the best a church is, is getting right now is maybe 60 to 70% of the number they had before larger churches, churches much larger than ours, megachurches, especially in the U.S., 50% at best. Smaller churches have had a really hard time getting everybody back, sometimes because of their demographic, the kind of people that would go to their church, it's just been harder to get people back in the room. We've benefited here from so many people moving up from the GTA here, but we've also had a bunch of people move out and leave, go to other places where they can actually buy a house. But in all of that, what God has been saying is, I don't measure things the way you measure them. Here's the way I measure them, God says. Are you keeping my word about patient endurance? And are you not denying my name? That's the only measure God's using. In other words, church, are you being faithful? If you're being faithful, it doesn't matter how big your church is or how many people show up. Are you being faithful with whoever's here? Whoever wants to be a part of it. Numbers say nothing. Faithfulness, endurance, love, these are the very character of our church, and this is what God measures. And so, if, the, if all of that is true, then we can continue on despite what anyone says about us, no matter how hard it gets, we persevere in the work to which we are called. In fact, at Harvest, we state our mission statement uh, this way: We glorify God by making more and better disciples of Jesus who love God and love people. That's the one thing we want to be doing in every ministry of our church. We glorify God. We we want Him to be praised in everything that we do. It's all about Him. It's vertical by making more evangelizing and better discipleship, better disciples training of Jesus who love God. This is the very character of the church. We love God and we love people. And if the church has that as the overarching mission, then every person who says that they want to be a part of this, every person who identifies with Harvest needs to look at that same mission statement and say, how am I contributing to that? Does my life glorify God? Am I making whatever effort I need to put into this to making more and better disciples of Jesus Christ? And are and people at the end of the day, because of my ministry, are they loving God and loving other people more? Every one of us asking that question. How am I contributing to the mission of the church? And Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia, and he's saying it to us Nothing internal or external to us should ever stop us from doing that very thing. Does that make sense? Does that sound like a whole sermon in and of itself? Do I still have two-thirds of a sermon to go? Yes, I do. Here's the second point. We should be encouraged to await his vindication. I mean, this is so important for us to lock in encouraged to await his vindication. It's so easy to fall into the trap of wanting to be vindicated now, or to say it another way, we want to be proven right now. We want people to respect us, to respect what we believe. There's a lot of people who are outside of the church who think that the church is anti-intellectual. They think that we're pretty dumb to believe this kind of stuff. They don't buy what we're selling There's a lot of people who who would mock us for being Christians, for for giving our attention to these things. And we would rather that people wouldn't be like that and that they would respect us rather than mock us. We want to be proven right now. We want to be vindicated now. Then Philadelphia was about suffering believers. And I get that we can go through levels of suffering, but in Philadelphia, it was at a whole different level than what we're experiencing Today, in Canada, these suffering believers had been run out of the synagogue, as we said. That likely had a number of other implications for them, as we've seen in the other letters in the first century, in the Roman Empire. Worship, marketplace, and social connections were all connected together. And so, if you didn't worship the right God or gods, if you weren't within the mainstream of what was acceptable in that society, then you could be cut off from the marketplace and you would be cut off from all of your social connections as well. And so it had incredible implications if you were a follower of Jesus Christ. And that was true for these believers in, in Philadelphia. They were ostracized socially. They were impacted economically. And of course, they were a small insignificant little minority in this city. And when I think about that, that's a challenging way to to live your entire life. Isn't it? Like to live your entire life Having accepted the gospel, become a Christian and have the gospel as the, as the driving force of your life, to have that. But then also, God says, along with that, for you, that's going to mean a lifetime of poverty. You're never going to dig out of it. A lifetime of being disliked, a lifetime of being maligned in the culture, a lifetime of being excluded from social connections. No one wants that. I don't want that. I haven't had to have that. And that's why I'm just making sure that we put enough of a distance between us and Philadelphia to know that what these believers were were, were facing was significantly more difficult than what we are. We do the kingdom of God and ourselves no service, though, if we are being maligned and persecuted, if we want to be vindicated. We do ourselves no service if we take matters into our own hands. Because the only way to be vindicated in this case would be to actually deny the gospel and walk away from it and to become acceptable again to the prevailing culture. And the people of Philadelphia were unwilling to do that. Vindication by God, in His timing of that vindication, is all that believers have to put their hat, to hang their hat on. Especially those, again, the context, especially those who have been persecuted, oppressed, and martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. But so many believers face this, not just in the first century as the, as the church was beginning to expand, but for the 1800 years that followed that right up until our time. So many have been persecuted, oppressed, and martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Even today as we meet here around the world today, there are believers who have made the decision to be a part of worship and who have faced arrest or even death as a result of that decision to gather with other believers in the world today. And so, and so we have this, this message, this reoccurring theme, so many believers facing this oppression, this persecution and martyrdom that it comes up again and again throughout the Scriptures, but in Revelation at least four more times in chapters 6 and 16 and 18 and 19. And so we might ask the question, why does Jesus feel the need to continually remind them and to remind us that we will eventually be vindicated? Is it because as much as we would like to think that we could convince our opponents to stand down with arguments that you and I believe are convincing proofs of the gospel, that in essence that will not happen? And the opposition and persecution will always be there and people will be martyred right up until the day that Jesus brings it to an end. In fact, as we read the scriptures and as we get deeper into the book of Revelation, we're going to see it doesn't get easier before the end for those of us who are following Christ. But much harder. So we're left with Jesus' advice to us. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Okay, this is almost verbatim what he said in chapter 2, verse 9, to the church in Smyrna. They were dealing with the same issue about Jewish radicals who were oppressing Christians while these same radicals were claiming to be God's people. And to that, Jesus says, That's a lie! They're not God's people. Not because they were simply Jews, but because they were unbelieving Jews who had rejected their Messiah. They're not God's people, Jesus is saying. You are. You're God's people. I opened the door for you, and I shut the door for them. But he says, relief is going to come from this oppression But, uh uh-oh, but not in your lifetime. He says in verse 9, behold, I will make them come. And this is a picture of yet future. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. That's not something that's going to happen for them next week or next month or next year. Not in their lifetime, it still has not yet happened. It's an eschatological or end times assurance that he's giving to them. At the end of the age, this is what's gonna go down. I want to comfort you and encourage you with this. Just be faithful now. And this wasn't just for the church in Philadelphia. This is a prevailing theme in the entire scriptures. And in Revelation, this theme of justice served God reminding us over and over again that His justice will be served. And so beyond suffering for your faith, which is the context here for the folks in Philadelphia, if you have been wounded, if you have been hurt by another, if you have been abused, if you have been falsely accused, if you have faced a lifetime of physical infirmity, of mental or emotional health issues, if you have lost relationships through no fault of your own, if you have faced injustice of any kind, you will be vindicated on the last day. Because God is a God of justice. And everyone who ever hurt you will learn that Jesus has loved you. That's the assurance we hear in this passage. That's his justice. And every person who has committed an injustice against you, every one of them will bow down before you. Not in worship. But in submission, because you too are holder of the keys of the kingdom of God. This whole picture of bowing down here in verse 9 actually comes to us from Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, 14 says this, the sons of those, and this and this and in this context, it's Israel and the nations around Israel that were oppressing God's people, the nation of Israel, the sons of those who afflicted you, these Gentile nations shall come bending low to you, Israel, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. That's a lift right out of Isaiah, and right here into Revelation 3. The whole scene reminds us, in fact, that believers will participate. Again, as a key holder, believers will participate in the judgment of the nations. We saw that in chapter 2 in the letter to Thyatira. Again, in Isaiah, the context is Gentile nations who are oppressing Israel, and they will come and bow before them. But this here in Revelation 3 is now an apparent reversal of that. Now it's not Gentiles bowing before Jews, but Jews bowing before Gentile Christians. What's common to both Isaiah 60 and Revelation 3 is this, and if you're taking notes, just jot this down. What's common to both is that unbelieving oppressors are bowing down to genuine believers unbelieving oppressors are bowing down to genuine believers so whether jewish or christian it's irrelevant in god's mind the categories of jew and gentile or of israel and church or israel and christian jew and christian And should i add i would even add before israel we have a whole history before israel of 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 yahweh worshipers and they're all included in this as well all are captured in the biblical idea of the one people of God. There's only ever been one people of God. Yes, God dealt differently in history with humanity, dealt, dealt with humanity differently throughout history, throughout the ages, but there has only ever been one people of God. Whether Jew or identifying as a Christian, what matters is faith and belief, not ethnicity. And certainly not works. Now, I, I, it's sad to say this, but I feel like I have to do a little sidebar here. It's sad to say, but because some people will fall into some mistaken notions about what this says about the Jewish people. Nothing we're reading here is a license in any way to be anti Semitic. Amen? Nothing. There's no room whatsoever in a Christian's life for racism of any kind. Amen? Even a cursory reading of Revelation shows that God shows no partiality. And if you, if you just skim through Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, you see this grand, this incredible scene in heaven where people from every tribe and language and people and nation are gathered before the throne in God's eternal kingdom. I mean, heaven is a racist's nightmare, isn't it? That's going to include Jewish people who will finally see that Jesus is indeed their Messiah. In a reading, reading through Romans 9 through 11, you see how God is going to regather and do a special end time work with Israel. So from our perspective, Jesus' blood was shed on the cross and Jesus was raised from the dead exiting the tomb for all the gospel is available to all the kingdom of god is for all we are one people of god and if you are racist and claiming to be a christian you need to repent and if you refuse to repent you have no claim on being a christian Do i need to say that again or everybody got it got it and if you have suffered to come back to the original theme of this and if you have suffered because of racism You will be vindicated by Jesus on the last day. You will not be vindicated in this life by protests or lobbies or education. This world is not headed that way. We need to wait patiently for the Lord to vindicate because he is the one who holds the keys and he's the one who has opened the door to the kingdom of God. Amen? All right, one, one more. We should be encouraged, thirdly, to lean hard on his promises. Now, the fact that they were persevering, these are the two points we've looked at, the fact that they were persevering in their work and also awaiting his vindication rather than taking matters into their own hands, rather than compromising the gospel, this was an indication that they were leaning hard on, on what was for them and, and for, the, for the most part, what is still future for us, the future promises of God. So he says in verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, because you're enduring through all the hardship, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Many of you wanted a series in Revelation. I have avoided it up until this very moment. Everything that we have seen through chapters 1, 2, and to this point in chapter 3 has been easy in the sense that there isn't a lot of disagreement about the things we're talking about. And then we come to chapter 3, verse 10. And it's at this point that we now have diverging paths in terms of our understanding of the end times and how it all plays out. So now, making some of you so happy, now we're getting into it. Two things have to be sorted out in this verse. First, what does it mean to keep you from? Okay, that's very important. What does it mean to keep you from? And secondly, what exactly is this hour of trial that Jesus is talking about here? So first, let's talk about this phrase, keep you. If Jesus says he's going to keep you, it can mean, first of all, one option is that that he's going to protect you through something. And he's going to walk through it with you, but he's going to give you all you need to remain faithful to him as you go through the trial. I'm going to keep you as you go through it. That's one way to look at that phrase. It's it's to protect you. Secondly, I'm going to keep you from the trial could mean I'm going to take you out of it. I'm going to remove you from the trial. Now, some Christians embrace a view that sees all Christians being removed before the tribulation events come. And um, that is described as uh, the rapture. And uh, this would support the idea of being removed from. And if you want to jot down another reference here, 1 Thessalonians 4 16 and 17. So these are the two big verses the Thessalonian passage, and then this one here in Revelation 3.10, that those who believe in a rapture, uh, this is what they hang their hat on, these two uh, key verses, um, to support their position that you're going to be removed out of this. And so, Christians will leave, Jesus will take them away, and yet, the challenge I have with that, if I can push back on that one for a little bit, is that all through the apocalyptic literature, including Revelation, we see believers going through it. That they're not removed from it. That Christians are oppressed, they're persecuted, and Christians are martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so to take this as a remove you flies in the face of the greater context of the prophecies. And so it might seem best to see this as to protect you through the coming tribulation rather than removing you from it. But I will admit, the case for both is compelling. And I'm not exactly sure. And I know that makes me a big disappointment to some of you. But I'm here just to please Jesus anyway. So, you know, have a good afternoon. (laughs) The second thing to work out here is what this hour of trial is. Yes, I'm going to leave it hanging just like that. And it's clear from the letter that, that this is an event that is of, 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 of a global scale. This isn't just something that's localized to Philadelphia where he's saying this hour of trial is going to happen in your city and I'm going to take you out of it. No, this is a global cataclysmic event. And again, how we interpret this will say a lot about how we're going to handle the rest of the book of Revelation because this is about God protecting his own through the coming global wrath that will afflict everyone. Now, Grant Osborne said some amazing things about this in his commentary, and to just distill it down to this, what God is promising to do for us is this, that we will be protected from God's wrath on unbelievers because we have the keys to the kingdom. We're gonna be protected from God's wrath on unbelievers, but we will not be protected from Satan's wrath on the earth. That we're just going to have to go through it. And because of that, we need to lean hard on the promise that no eternal harm can ever come to his children. Do you believe that? No eternal harm can ever come to his children. No matter, listen, no matter how that plays out, whether you believe there's a rapture and he takes you away or whether you're going to go through it, it doesn't matter. God's going to give you what you need in the moment to get through it. By the way, rapture people, they're super gracious. Even if you don't believe in the rapture, they believe you're still going to get taken. So that's cool. You know, so you just tuck that into your wallet. Now further, Jesus assures us, I love this, and this really comes right down to it. Verse 11, no matter how we see the end times unfolding, no matter what your perspective is on how this is all going to go down, everyone agrees on what it says here in verse 11. Jesus says, I am coming soon. At the end of the day, we all believe Jesus is returning. Amen? We all believe Jesus is returning. And so in light of that, we need to patiently endure. We need to remain under the trial. That's what the word endure or perseverance means. Every other time that Jesus has talked about his coming in these letters, it's been in the negative sense of you don't want Jesus to come back because he's coming back and you're disobedient and his discipline is going to be leveled directly on your head. But not to Philadelphia because this church was getting it right. And so the coming of Christ is something to be eagerly anticipated. He's not rebuking them in any way. He's encouraging them, and he's promising his coming to vindicate them and to fulfill all of his eternal promises. He promises to reward them in some pretty significant ways. And This is exactly where you and I want to live. On mission, patiently enduring, taking whatever comes our way, staying on mission for him, and fully anticipating, ready for Jesus when he comes through the clouds, not worrying a lick about any of it because we're being faithful to him and we're ready for him. So then Jesus just starts heaping up promises. The promises keep coming. An exhortation, first of all, the only command in this letter is to hold fast what they have. Just keep doing the thing that you're doing so that no one may seize your crown. So, so listen, the believers are not merely stewards. They're not like Eliakim from, from back in Isaiah 22. They're not just stewards of the household. They're members of the household. You and I are members of the household. We're not just stewards with a key. We're, we're sons and daughters of the king. We're princes and princesses. We're wearing crowns. We've been adopted into the family of the king. We share in his sovereignty and his glory. In fact, in verse 12, the one who conquers, the one who perseveres, this phrase we've seen in every letter, the one who perseveres through all of this, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You thought, Philadelphia, you thought, church, that you were weak and insignificant and so small, and I want to tell you, you're actually pillars holding up the temple. What's really cool about this is, when you start to think about what's going to happen in eternity... There is no temple. Spoiler alert, chapter 21, verse 22 of, of Revelation. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no temple, there's no physical temple. It's the Lord. And we're there with them, and these believers have been told they're going to be pillars in the temple of God. God is simply with us and we're simply with him and we're all part of it and enjoying all the benefits of all of eternity. Still more promises and he says to them next, something very particular to Philadelphia, never shall he or she go out of it. Philadelphia was actually built on a fault line. They didn't know that at the time, but a great earthquake came in AD 17 and devastated the city so much so that the emperor suspended taxes for several years so that the taxes could be kept back to rebuild the city. But it was always facing tremors, always facing other minor earthquakes. And and anytime that would happen, the people would leave the city. They'd They'd get out of the city, away from the roofs and the stone buildings, and get out into the fields, and they would just camp there until everything settled down again. They would have to leave the security and safety of their own city to find security and safety outside of it. And God says to these Philadelphians who are so accustomed to this, You're never going to be compelled to leave the city. Once you're in there, you have the keys. You're welcome there. It's part of who you are and you dwell there for all eternity. You'll never be compelled to leave the city of God. Another promise to his faithful church. I will write on him. Notice this. This is Jesus saying to him and her, to the believers, I will write on him and her the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. That sounds like a scriptural basis for tattoos. Doesn't it? And all the people with tattoos said, amen. Amen. And all the people who don't have tattoos laugh nervously. God's going to, I mean, what else does this mean? God's going to tattoo his name on us. He's going to tattoo his address, our address on us, New Jerusalem. It's awesome. It's our identity. We'd never again have to wonder who we are. Never face someone who says to us, you're not a good enough Christian. You don't have what it takes. You're not living for God. You're not God's people. promise is all summed up just as the other letters close. So Jesus appeals to his faithful church one last time to be encouraged. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear and be encouraged in the midst of whatever difficulties you're facing. Have an ear and listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to you. I hope you're encouraged by that today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you again for your kindness in giving us your word, and Father, speaking into our lives for that intimate knowledge that you have of us, and knowing how comforting that is. And Father, I pray that we would think hard, meditate hard on these things, and not just just have, have processed this message intellectually, Father, but that we would be internalizing that, that we would be thinking deeply about these things, that we would be allowing our spirit to be comforted and cared for, that we would carry this with us, not only through the next week, but for the rest of our lives. God, thank you for the, the building up that we've experienced here today, how encouraged we are because of you, because of who Jesus is, holy one, true one. He's legit. God, I pray that he would be so in every one of our lives, genuine, real, transforming us more fully into his own image. Thank you, God, for giving us the keys to your kingdom. Thank you for opening the door. Continue your good work in us, I pray, Father. In Christ's name.